Well, good morning, church. My name is Cody King, and uh, I'm the Edgewood campus pastor here, and uh, I'd like to say welcome to those that are joining us in Wills Point this morning. Also, those that are joining us online, we're glad that you're spending some time with us this morning. But wherever you are at, if you would take a few moments, go ahead and grab your Bible, if you would open that up to Romans 15. This morning, we're going to be working through uh, verses 1 through 13. In this passage of Scripture, in many ways, it... Um, it, uh, it marks the, um, the end of Paul's teaching to the Romans. It's not the end of his letter, but it's the end of his teaching or the teaching portion that he has for the church there. And for us today, as we look through that, there's um, some very deep theological truths that he uh, conveys to us. In no way does Paul leave the least of his teachings uh, for the last of his teachings to the Romans. Um, as he wraps up um, just the picture that he has laid out. And uh, in many ways, I'm excited to share, with it, share it with you this morning. Uh, and in some ways, it's not quite the easiest to convey. Um, but nonetheless, I'm looking forward to working through this with you all this morning. So verses 1 and 2, um, you could view those as a summation of the last two weeks that... Um, we shared together. If you missed the last two weeks, I encourage you to go back and um, uh, take a look or take a listen to those teaching, teachings to catch you up. But in verse 1, Paul begins and he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right, so this could be a, a, a summarization of chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. And we found there that that what exists in the church oftentimes is two types of believers. You have one who is the strong in the faith, and this person that's strong in the faith, they're a mature believer who fully understands the gospel. They fully understand the freedom that they have in Christ and, and, and what they can and cannot do when it comes to matters of preference or opinions within the body um, of Christ. They understand that freedom. But then on the other side of it, you have the weak in faith. In the weak in faith, they, they understand the gospel, they've grabbed a hold of the gospel, but there's a depth that they haven't reached yet um, to the understanding of the freedom that they have in Christ. They've come to Christ, but in some ways they're still holding on back here to a past tradition or a set of rules or rituals or ceremony that they once beheld to, and they struggle to come to Christ and to understand their freedom and their ability or their freedom to let go of all of those things and experience the fullness of the freedom that they have in Christ. And Paul laid out that that can set us at odds because we all have opinions, we all have preferences, but whenever it exists between us, one that understands their freedom and one that lacks an understanding, one can pass judgment for what they believe to be sin and the other can despise the other for that judgment, for making them feel as if I can't act on the freedom that I have. And Paul walked through it again. I encourage you to go back and check that out. But Paul tells us, he says, we who are strong, you see that he includes himself in the strong, but he says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, verse two, Paul says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So this would be a summation of chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, where he said, let, let all be done for peace and for the mutual upbuilding of the body. 
Forego your preferences. Look to the needs of others. Look to the needs of your neighbor. Look to please others instead of yourself. And this builds up the church. So as we look at these two verses, and if we consider chapter 14 and what Paul outlines there, and he gives instruction in that, but here Paul shifts in, in, in some way and doesn't give instruction so much as he begins to lay out an example for you and I. And oftentimes when it comes to teachings of any kind, an example helps the illustrator, helps us to look at that thing and to see this is the way in which I'm to do what I've just been instructed to do. And here Paul gives us our example in verse 3. Paul says, For Christ did not please himself. So as Paul tells us, he tells the strong that we have an obligation to bear with the weak, but he says not to please ourselves. And then he says, but each of us should please his neighbor. The example we have in that, he says, is Christ, who did not please himself, but he says, as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69.9. He says, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So again, Paul's quoting Psalm 69.9. Chuck Swindoll calls this the lament of the righteous sufferer. In that particular uh, psalm, you have King David, and, and he's, he's lamenting um, the difficulty that he finds himself to be in. In verse 5 of that uh, Psalm, you find David, he's, he's committed some kind of sin. He's committed to sin and then he's found himself in this lamentable situation. He says, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Right, so despite his sin, then you, we can now see his righteousness in verse 6 of Psalm 69, where David says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord. God of hosts. He says, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. So even though he sinned, he reveals his righteousness and he reveals himself to be a man of, after God's own heart. And that even in that sin, he's like, don't let anyone who would come to you be despised in any way for what I've done. Let them come to you in peace and for who you are and not through me in any way. He looks to others. But Paul applies, verse Nine of that psalm to Christ. He applies it to Christ and he's showing how he was more concerned to do the will of God as a servant of God than he was to seek his own comfort. As, as David applies that, don't, don't hold it against them on account of me so that he feels better about it. I will take it on. I will bear the reproach of those who reproached you that it would fall on me. And this is what Christ has done. And this is how Paul applies that truth given in the Old Testament to Christ. As he is our example, as he didn't seek to please himself, he bore our reproach, the reproach that was supposed to fall on me and you. Reproach is insult, but it can also be a judgment. If you put it in terms like that, Christ bore in himself the judgment that you and I were meant to have. And he didn't do anything for his own comfort or to please himself. So our example falls there. And what Christ has done, this will become Christ's unifying work for his body, the church. As we will see. And as Paul lays out this beautiful picture of Christ's example and what he has done for you and I. And Paul will show what he has done for you and I has been God's plan since the very beginning. 
But now back to what Paul says to the strong as he compares this to Christ. He says to the strong, he says we're to bear with the failings of the weak. The word bear with there me is bastazo, but it's to take up in order to carry. Right? It's to put upon oneself something to be carried on behalf of someone else. In Galatians 6.2, Paul tells the church in Galatia, he says to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So carrying another's weaknesses in the spiritual sense is the same as carrying their burdens in the physical sense. We help them get where they're going by coming alongside them, lifting up what's difficult for them, whatever it is that they find in their hand or whatever it is they find upon their heart. You and I, where the strong in faith are to bear with the failings of the weak or to help them carry things along. The word for failings is asthenema, but it means a scruple of conscience. It's an infirmity or an error arising from a weakness of mind. Now, a scruple is, is, is considered or it's, it's, it's defined as a doubt or hesitation with regard to the morality of the course of action. So for you and I, whenever we, we have scruples, these are things that, that we have doubts about. And when it pertains to our faith and our understanding of our freedom, whenever you have someone that, that doesn't fully understand that freedom or they're, they're teetering between should I do this or should I not do this and there's hesitation and doubt about what's wrong and what's right and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, Paul says that the strong who understand that should come alongside the weak, should lift them up, should carry their burdens in a spiritual sense and to help them along, not to just correct, but just to help carry that for them. Now back to Christ's example. In Philippians chapter two, Paul tells the church at Philippi, he gives the possibly the clearest example of Christ's servant-heartedness. And Paul tells the church there in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not crown equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus... Our example, Jesus bore our burdens physically so that you and I would be set free spiritually. But he also bore our failings spiritually so that you and I would be set free physically. Now, what do I mean by that? When it comes to the topic of the last couple of weeks, when it comes to eating and drinking, what are we free to do physically in Christ when it comes to matters of preference? Christ on the cross bore our failings so that when we come to him, we have freedom to do things in this physical world that don't go against his word. It's not a matter of morality or it's not a matter of sin. He bore those failings spiritually so that you and I could live freely, physically. But he also bore our burdens. His body was broken on the cross so that we would be free spiritually. That is our example in Christ. As he didn't seek to please himself, he didn't look to his own comfort, but he came to serve. Though he was the form of God, 
He became and took the form of a servant so that he would glorify God and would do what he would do and set us free. And that's the example you and I have to do for each other. So number one, we have our example. Number two, Paul gives us our encouragement in verse four. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So if we find our example in Christ, we find our encouragement through the scriptures. It's what he says. So Paul's quoted the Old Testament in verse three, and he says that through the scriptures endurance, now we might have hope. We find encouragement in the scripture, but he says through endurance, but it's the scriptures endurance that he's talking about. He says, for whatever was written in the former days, it was written for our instruction. And it's the endurance of what was written. It is the endurance of the scripture. Now, what does he mean by the endurance of the scriptures? How is scripture endured? But it's what scripture says that has endured and that gives us encouragement today. So his point is not that he's teaching something entirely new in the New Testament. He's not writing the second half of our Bible and giving us a bunch of new teaching that is disconnected from the old teaching. What he's saying is, is the endurance of the scriptures is that what was said then has endured over time to encourage us today. And it's a point that he's going to return to in verses 8 through 12. But first... In verse 5 and 6, he gives us now an exhortation. So we have our example in Christ. We have our encouragement from the Word. And then now we have our exhortation. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So he says, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement. So note, he says that, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures. But now he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony. So where is it that the endurance of the scriptures comes from? It comes from God's word. Right? Where is the encouragement of the scriptures come from? It comes from God. Is the source of it. He says that may that grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ. So in harmony with one another, it's, the word is phaneo, but it means to be of the same mind. It's, the, it's, it's, it's not groupthink in a sense, but it's to be of the same mind with one another. A good example of this would be a band or say our worship team. Our worship team comes together. It's, it's, it's many different people. It's, it's, it's five or so pieces between a guitar, acoustic guitar. Then you have keyboard. You get drums. You have various singers. And you have all these people come together. They have the same mind in that they're playing the same piece of music. But each person is playing the same piece of music, but they're not playing the same exact thing. Between an electric guitar and an acoustic guitar, they're, they're each playing the same chord but they're playing different notes in the chord and in different ways. The bass player over here, the bass, they're playing, he's playing individual notes, but he's also keeping rhythm in step with the drummer who's keeping the same rhythm with that bass player between all of the different pieces of his drum, though he's not playing them all the same way. And it's the same thing with the vocalist. You have the lead singer is singing, but the backup singers sing in harmony with that vocalist. 
and that they don't sing the exact same notes, but they're singing in the same key. They're of the same mind. But if all of these individual pieces were to come up here on a Sunday morning and play their own thing and not being unison with one another, it would be utter chaos. The church would not be edified in worship, and I don't believe the Lord would be glorified. It would be utter chaos, and it would sound horrible. But yet... When the worship team practices, when each individual part is prepared and they come together and each play their part, they pursue excellence in their part, they're of the same mind. And the result of that is God's glorification. But he says they do this. He says that the may God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. But this isn't harmony with one another for one another. It's not just in and of ourselves we're to be of the same mind. Again, it's not groupthink with our think and how good we are, what we may think. He says it is in accord or it's along with Christ. So we have the same mind of Christ. Remember, recall in Philippians 5 verse or Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus has given us the mind we should have, and it's that same mind when we come together which has the, the correct response, and it produces the result that Christ would desire or what he would have a mind to do, and that is verse 6, that together you may with one voice in unity glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you and I, our exhortation from the Lord is that we would live in such a way that we would have the same mind together, we would be about the same thing, and that is the work of God, that is the salvation of the world in this community first, and in this county first, but we would be of the same mind where we would come and go and encourage one another to that end, to where God would be glorified in what we say and what we do as we pursue that goal. Now we have our example in Christ. We have our encouragement in the word. We have our exhortation from Paul. In verse 17 and following, we have our explanation. This is God's plan throughout Scripture. Verse 7, he returns back to the example of Christ. He says, says therefore, he draws a conclusion... Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, but for the glory of God. You don't welcome one another for your own glory. You don't welcome one another for that person to just feel better. You don't welcome one another so you feel better in your welcoming of them. He says, you welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, and you do this for the glory of God. And if we get that out of sorts, then we begin inward focus instead of God focus. But you do this for the glory of God. The word for welcome is proslambano. We've seen this word a couple weeks ago. It means to accept, uh, accept the friendship of one another or accept one another into your circle of friends to befriend them and show friendship. As Jesus told his disciples, you are my friends. And this has been God's plan all along. He explains in verse 8. Paul says this now. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He says, For two reasons Christ became a servant. 
He says, one, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then two, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So this is a summation of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Here you have the Jewish people. God, God called the Jewish nation. He set them up as a holy nation unto Himself. They're His priesthood. They're, be to, they're to be a light and a beacon of hope to the world around them. The source of justice in a broken world. God gave them promises when he says he, 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 he came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The patriarchs is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the fathers of the nation of Israel. But Jesus came to them first. But he ended up rejected by them. Paul told us as we studied verses chapters 9, 10, and 11 that in their rejection of Christ, salvation would come to the Gentile. So Christ became a servant. First to the circumcised, that's the nation of Israel, in order to confirm or to show God's truthfulness. That everything that, that, that God said in His law, this is the endurance of the Scriptures. As the prophets told the coming of the Messiah... The Messiah comes in the form of a servant, Jesus. He goes to his people first. His people reject him. But it confirms the promises that God made to their fathers. But then in their rejection, mercy was shown to the Gentiles. And then Paul gives four passages, four Old Testament examples of this truth, to corroborate the truth that everything that God has said prior to this, when Paul says the Scriptures, he is referring to Old Testament. Paul's writing in the first century. The New Testament hasn't been had yet. He's actually writing the New Testament. So when Paul says the Scriptures, he's referring to Old Testament teaching. And all of that, as he quotes that, supports the point that he's getting at. And they reveal what was true of God then, his plan for all time. So he says, he says, and as it was written, in verse 9, the second half, he's quoting 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. 50. Paul says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. this is a song of praise by David. It's also included as Psalm 18. And it's typical of Old Testament perspective of gospelizing the nations of the world or the Gentiles, as a result of God's favor to Israel. God does, does, gives, bestows blessing, blessings upon Israel. As God, as God blesses Israel, it's to be a testimony to the Gentile nations, that God is who he says, that God is a God of, of blessing, he's a God of promise, he's a God of love. And Paul applies this here, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name so that they would hear of God's power and might. Verse 10, he says, And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. From Deuteronomy 32, 43. And this is a song of Moses. Israel's first national leader issues an invitation in the last verse of his song. He says, O rejoice, O nations, or Gentiles, with his people. You see what Paul is doing? He's beginning to lay out that these things have been set forth Long ago, it's always God's plan. 
that salvation would come to the Gentiles. For the Jew to read this, they would struggle greatly in the first century. But Paul lays out the truth that it's always been. In verse 11, he says, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117. Verse 1, it's the shortest psalm in, in all the psalms. It's two verses long. And they call on the nations to praise the God of Israel. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. In verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. In Isaiah 11.10, this is the Messianic passage. It follows from verse 1 of Isaiah where he predicts a branch rising from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And from the stump of Jesse, there will come a leader. There will come a king that will rule over all the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him is what he says. And that branch is Jesus. So Jesus became a servant to serve God's people as their Messiah. They reject him. So his salvation and his mercy goes to the Gentiles. But it is a plan that has been laid out throughout the entirety of God's word. This is Paul letting us into the mystery of the gospel. Letting us into the mystery of God's will. And it has always existed. And then Jesus unites the two. The Jew and the Gentile in Ephesians 2. Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, Therefore remember that you, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That, seems, that sounds pretty horrible, does it not? He's telling the Gentiles, he's telling you and I that apart from Christ, at one point in time, we were strangers from the commonwealth. Had no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those, peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And the entirety of the Bible points to this wonderful truth for you and I. That at one point in time, there were two men. One had the promises of God. One experienced salvation. The other did not. But God's plan from the foundation of the earth was that that second man would, through Christ, be reconciled to God. It would no, matter, no longer be a matter of the law. It would no longer be a matter of an old covenant. There would be a new covenant in Christ Jesus, inaugurated in his death on the cross, that you and I would be able to come to him. Anyone would be able to come to him. And as we come to him, we see the example 
of the servant that you and I should be. God's plan to reconcile the world to himself was set in his son, Jesus Christ, who came not as a ruling, conquering king, not in the power of divinity and everything that he was as God, but he came and took the form of a servant. He didn't please himself. You and I, in our weakness, we seek to please ourselves. But Christ is our example. We seek to please others. We seek to sacrifice on behalf of others. We seek to serve others. The way that you and I get away from preferential matters, the way that you and I get away from thinking of strong in faith and weak in faith, though those things exist, the way you and I come away from those things is we look to Christ and his example of servanthood. If he's the one that reconciled both to God, tore down the dividing wall of hostility, creating in himself one new man, man out of the two. Who are you and I in any matter to speak differently about our brothers and sisters in Christ on a matter of preference or opinion of a matter? Paul lands with this has been God's plan forever. And you and I have now been let in on that plan and our response should be out of obedience to bear with the failings with one another, to not seek to please ourselves, but seek to please one another, to do and serve one another. Now Paul concludes in verse 13 his, his benediction. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He says, now, God, he, he, he describes God in two ways throughout this. One, he's the God of endurance and encouragement. Here, he's the God of hope. And he says, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And he says, so that, so that indicates a cause-effect relationship. So our believing enables the feeling of joy and peace in us. Where did joy and peace come from? Well, they come from his spirit. So when we come to belief, we receive his spirit, then we are filled with joy and peace. And that joy and peace becomes the only, comes only from his spirit, but it produces an overflow of hope within you and I. Here on church, our church staff, we have, we have a set of values that... Um, we seek to walk out as a staff as we, as we lead within the body. One of those, and it's actually the first one, it's, uh, it's to share an exalting hope. An exalting hope, it could, be, it could be one of many things. It could just be encouraging one another. Um, it certainly could be serving one another. It could be sharing the gospel with one another. But when I think of a, an exalting hope, One of the clearest pictures to me of that is when I come and go here, not just on a Sunday morning, but Wednesday nights for student ministry, Monday nights for regeneration, when we have events such as foundations, there are many, many people who come and willingly give of their time, they give of their energy, they give of their resources in order to serve the body here. 
They sacrifice many things on behalf of the growth and the upbuilding and the edification of the body here. And to me, that is an exalting hope. That fills me with joy. That fills me with peace to know that it's not about who may be teaching on this stage. It's not about who may be leading this ministry or that ministry. It's about the people coming together in harmony with one another, being of the same mind with one another, understanding our roles despite our strengths, despite our weaknesses, but looking to the mission of Christ and looking to serve one another. Church, that is an exalting hope that I'm thankful to see. And it encourages me as I continue on. And church, it is my hope that that we don't come away from a study as, uh, uh, such as this in Romans, which it's been a long time. I think this is week 40 of our study of Romans. We're probably coming up on, I almost said coming up on a year, but I guess so, 52 weeks, that's a year, right? But nonetheless, it's been a long time that we've been walking through this, but I pray that we don't come away as we near the end of this one thing, that we don't breathe, man, I'm glad we're finally moving on to something next, but I'm, I pray that we diligently look back. If you've been taking notes, I encourage you to go back and review your notes, but look for ways for you to grow. Look for ways to take what you've learned and give away to others, not just to correct, not to belittle, not to show this freedom or that weakness or whatever it may be. Another exalting hope is discipleship. And it's my joy to see when we have an event such as Foundations Class, when I see people come and people give of their time and they're willing to sit and lead a discussion at a table and help disciple and equip others, that is an exalting hope. Those are the ways in which we serve. And it can be as simple as opening a door on a Sunday morning, smiling, shaking someone's hand, making them feel welcome. That is deeply meaningful to the body. But I pray that we see more and more a desire in each and every one of us by Christ's example, serve one another and love one another well. All else falls to the wayside. If we would love one another and seek to serve one another. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning and and our time in your word, Lord. I thank you for the instruction of your word as always, Lord. That you have not in any way left us to figure out things on our own, Lord. That life is difficult and we're messed up. We're foolish people who our default mode is can be to please ourselves and to serve ourselves and not look to the needs of others. Our default mode can be to, to just fall into our little sphere of influence and not look outwardly. Our default mode, Lord, can be to just come because we feel obligated to come, but not feel obligated to give anything away. I pray that you convict our hearts in that. But I pray earnestly above that that you would teach us our own failings. Teach us to see 
how you have bared with us in our failings and weaknesses, Lord, so that we may grow, that we would continue to be transformed from one degree of glory to another to the same image, Lord, and that is your image, and I pray that we look to you in that, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.